turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos. And good luck not using the table of contents to get there. We're looking at Amos chapter 1. Amos chapter 1. And you know, it's really funny. I was telling Abigail this a little bit earlier, but I, you know, I have commentaries and stuff that I look up, and they're kind of by groups like Isaiah to Malachi and Matthew to Luke and all this other stuff. And I literally didn't even know which commentary to get because I didn't really know where Amos was. Like, like I know where it is, but I didn't really know where it is. Do you know what I'm saying? And like, that's how little I know or knew about this book. But I love what we do here at PV in college because what we do here is we go through the Bible a few verses at a time. We take a book of the Bible and we go through it a few verses at a time because there is, especially in Amos here, well, especially in all of it, there is so much good stuff in here, so much good stuff in the book of Amos. And so, so I just want to encourage you guys, I know it's a busy semester, but do the best you can to be here, okay? Not because we're trying to pad our numbers or anything ridiculous like that, but because we, these sermons are going to build off of each other, and, and every week you're going to see stuff in this book that Paul let us in to start last week. You're just going to see so much in here that you had no idea was in here. And it is so cool and so helpful, and, and it just points to Jesus. Um, so some context, <clears throat> some, I don't know what's going on, some intro to the book of Amos, and then we'll get into the text. Does that make sense? And the context is actually really helpful for getting into the text. Okay, so um, Amos's message is to the nation of Israel, Okay, even though Amos as a prophet is from the land of Judah to the south. Okay, and we'll explain that in a little bit. But Amos's message is to Israel, even though Amos is from the land of Judah in the south. Amos, where else is Amos mentioned in the Bible? Good. He's never mentioned again outside of the book of Amos, which is pretty interesting. He is never mentioned again outside of this book, which is pretty cool because there's there's an old slogan or a phrase that that people will say about Christians, which is, this is kind of your method as a Christian, preach the gospel, die, good, easy, so far easy, preach the gospel, die, be forgotten, live with Jesus forever. That's it. That's the Christian life. Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten, live with Jesus forever. And that seems to be what Amos does. He preaches the gospel and then he's never heard from again. And I'm sure he's perfectly fine with that. So a little geography, there's not going to be a quiz, but just hang in. Israel's big threat at this point in history, in the Old Testament, is Assyria, okay? Assyria. However, Assyria gets in trouble at their other borders, and so they have to deal with stuff up there. And so for about 50 or 60 years, there is no threat in Israel because Assyria is busy. Make sense? And Israel is allowed to grow, because they're not being oppressed or pushed in, Israel is allowed to grow and flourish under King Jeroboam, who we will meet in just a couple of seconds. During this time, Israel becomes very wealthy. But as a result of this wealth, shocker, wait for it, Israel becomes complacent, and they forget God. So as a result of this wealth, as a result of this success, Israel begins to forget God. This is reason number 4058 that the prosperity gospel is trash because prosperity actually draws, sometimes, like prosperity can sometimes draw you further away from God. But Israel starts to slowly let in the gods of the surrounding nations. God can no longer tolerate, here's the list, 
God can no longer tolerate their idolatry. He can no longer tolerate their hypocrisy. He can no longer tolerate their social injustice. College kids in 2023. Amos is like the perfect book for 2023 because God goes there as he often does. So we've already, we're not even in the text yet and we kind of have our first lesson, if you want to call it that. Suffering is awful. It is, that's not the lesson, you know that. Suffering is awful, and here's the bold, suffering is awful, but sometimes it's not our suffering that kills us, it's our comfort. Suffering is awful, no argument here. But sometimes, as case in point Israel, sometimes it's not our suffering that defeats us, it's our comfort. Some of, some of the best prayers that you'll ever hear or pray are when you're in the hospital, right? Or when your loved one's in the hospital, or when you're desperate, or when you're upset, or when you're terrified. The, those prayers, and not that there aren't good prayers when you're comfortable, but it's that, that time of suffering is where the closeness of God comes from, so often. So suffering is bad, but sometimes it's not our suffering that kills us, it's our comfort. And that's what happened to Israel. It's Israel's comfort that has hardened its heart, and God wants to bring it back, but in order to melt that ice, he has to apply some heat. Amos comes from Judah to Israel to warn them, to convict them, and at the end, he will tell them that God remembers his promise and can be merciful to them. Okay, That's the flow of Amos. That's the message of Amos. And just so you know, if it's like, man, I love that history, it was not boring at all, or maybe you were bored and you just need to go back. We are recording, obviously, and it'll be on the PV and College podcast, which I'll talk about. Okay, look at Amos chapter 1, verse 1. Good place to start. Amos chapter 1, verse 1. The word of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Amos describes himself as a shepherd, okay? He's a shepherd. So exciting, right? Pulse pounding already. In chapter seven, wait for it, he describes himself as a dresser of sycamore figs, okay? Are we thrilled yet? Or a collector of sycamore fruit. So this guy, Amos's job before he was a prophet was he, he worked the land. He worked in his yard and maybe in the yards of other people. He also says in chapter seven, which we'll get to, that he is not a prophet or the son of a prophet, meaning he has no line of great prophets or great family history. He is as blue collar as blue collar gets, okay? Tekoa is in the land of Judah, all right? And you can see it lists two kings here, Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, king of Israel. So Israel has a king and Judah has a king. They used to be the same nation, okay? The land of Israel was just Israel. But after King Solomon, Israel breaks out into civil war and is split between Israel and Judah. So already things are not as they should be, right? Due to their sinfulness. And this is two years before the earthquake. So descriptive, right? The earthquake. It's, it's kind of the same way as if I say September 11th, you know what that is. I don't have to explain it. Or if I say COVID, you know what that is. I don't have to explain it, right? It's the same thing. This, this, there seems to be a similar thing here. It was so horrific and damaging that everyone in Israel just remembers it as the earthquake. 
And it seems that this was written after it happened because it, you know, it says before the earthquake and blah, blah, blah. But Israel has two years to repent under Amos, two years to turn back and, and, and prevent this from happening. It's also interesting in verse 2, it says, and he said, let's stop right there, that's Amos, and he said, look at verse 3 though, thus says the Lord. So you have a human who speaks for the Lord, who almost speaks as the Lord, but he's separate from the Lord. That sounds a lot like Jesus. The prophets are, point, just in their own existence, the prophets are pointing to one who will come later, a human who will speak for the Lord because he is the Lord. So this is what he says to Israel. Look at verse two. And we're gonna cover the whole chapter tonight, so it's gonna be great. So buckle in. Verse two, <clears throat> and he said, the Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn and the top of Carmel withers. So the Lord speaks from Zion as, he's described here as a roaring lion. Now we say that about God a lot, right? Like it's all over the place. You get a big lion t-shirt at Passion or whatever. In Narnia, Jesus is figured as Aslan the lion. This is where we get that from, okay? It's not just like a cool word picture. This is from the Bible. It's in other prophets as well. He's described as a lion four different times throughout the prophets. And he's doing, whatever he's doing, he's roaring like a lion from Jerusalem, from Zion, same place. Jerusalem is the capital city of Judah, okay? That southern kingdom. It's also where the temple is. The Lord is roaring from his temple like a lion from his den. Make sense? We follow that? But this is also a peek into the central role that the temple plays in the Old Testament. Think about the old story, Daniel in the lion's den, right? Daniel gets arrested for praying. But in Daniel chapter 6, it specifically says he bowed and prayed towards Jerusalem. Why though? Why does he need to know to point towards Jerusalem? Because that's where God is. The presence of God in the Old Testament was in Jerusalem. In Ezekiel, when God visits Ezekiel in Babylon, that's what's so shocking because the presence of God is actually in Jerusalem. What are you doing here? Prayers went through the temple of God up to God. Does that make sense? That was the Israelite thinking. That's what the Lord had ordained. So now in John chapter 2, when Jesus says, tear this temple down and I will build it back up in three days, Jesus is the new temple. The temple was always where heaven met earth, but Jesus is the new temple. So wherever Jesus is, heaven meets earth. Now you and I have that same access right now. You don't have to go to a temple. We always say, oh, it would be so cool to live in the Old Testament time. But did you know that Old Testament Jews look at our time with our access to Christ? Not because we have cell phones or whatever. Oh, what access? Oh my gosh. Like, but because there's no temple, there's no building. We can just go anywhere. They want to live in our time. But in those days, the presence of God was in the temple. To be cut off from the temple was to be cut off from the presence of God. And now the presence of God is in his temple, and he is not happy. He is furious. Mount Carmel in verse 2. Church kids of the world, you may or may not know. This is where Elijah earlier defeats the prophets of Baal in Israel. It is kind of the center of Israel's false worship. It represents the, their false worship. So by saying that Carmel 
withers under God is specifically pointing out how angry he is at them because of their, why are you angry? This is, Carmel's why I'm angry. Mount Carmel is why I'm angry. And he says it withers. The word here is to dry up. Israel is in a drought right now due to their false worship, which is why the shepherds are mourning. He's using a big deal to get their attention. Turn back to me now before the real thing comes, which is the earthquake. All right, look at three through five. Three through five, and then we'll, we'll get going in it. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have threshed Gilead with, threshers, with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Hazael and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth-Aden and to the people of then the people of Syria shall go to exile at Kir. Pretty self-explanatory, right? Just kidding. Um, here we go. So, in one, all right, note takers. Here we go. Remember in Peter, First Peter, we had this big section that was the household code. Same thing in Amos. For one three through two five, God will judge seven nations surrounding Israel. From one three to two five, God will address seven nations surrounding Israel. He will introduce it, he will call out their sin, and then he will announce judgment. And he does this for seven nations. Seven is a big number in the Bible, right? Seven days of creation, seven of everything in the book of Revelation, right? Israel at this time is very prosperous economically, and in their success, they have become prideful. This leads them to hate all the surrounding nations for what they've done. As Amos tells Israel about the judgments on all these other nations, Israel gets more and more proud, more and more sinful. Yes, take them out, take them out. And, with the, and after the seventh nation, one, three through two, five, after the seventh nation in chapter two, verse six, God brings judgment to an eighth nation. Can you guess who this nation will be? God brings judgment on an eighth. This number seven is the number of completeness. It's the perfect number. So God bringing an eighth nation in, this must be horrible. This nation isn't included in the list of seven because it has a wickedness all its own and God is extra furious because they should know better. And the eighth nation is, you guessed it, Israel. One commentary says, as you read the first seven nations being punished by God, Israel is celebrating when in reality they should be seeing that the noose is beginning to tighten around their own neck. All seven of these nations are right around Israel, almost like a grip is closing around their throat. And the whole time, they just become more and more prideful instead of repentant. Now, we're going to go through these seven nations and you're going to be like, I, what does Damascus have to do with me? We're going to get there, but you got to see it before I show it. Does that make sense? Um, not really, but it's cool. All right, verse three. For three transgressions and for four, what is happening? It's this idea of building. It just keeps getting worse. Your transgressions, your sin, no, three. Now four, you're getting worse, Damascus. The list just keeps building. Damascus is the capital of Syria. Syria is to the north of Israel, nation number one. Gilead, this place where they've been, is this farmland between Israel and Syria, okay? It was mostly occupied by Israel, but according to this, 
Syria attacked it violently and kicked Israel out. For this, God will enact punishment. And it says in verse 3, if I can find it, he will, yeah, in verse 3, I will not revoke this punishment. It will not stop. Where is the only other place in the universe slash Bible where we know of God's punishment never ceasing? It will be as if Syria has been thrown into hell by God because of this, because of what they've done. Four through five, okay, four through five. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. Fire is coming to Hazael. He's the king of Damascus. He's the king of Syria. Ben-Hadad, or son of Hadad, is, maybe if you like stub your toe, you can just say that instead. So Ben-Hadad or whatever, everybody okay? We're still cool. Um, Ben-Hadad is another title for king, like commander-in-chief. Does that make sense? It's just a title for the king saying the same thing. He's going to break the gates of Damascus, verse 5, so their gate will be broken and they will be attacked by people they do not know. The valley of Avon and Beth Aden are areas in Syria. It's, it's a way of saying, it's like saying from, from Rhode Island to California, this attack will happen. I'm, I'm covering the whole land. No one will be able to escape what I'm going to do. Last one, Kir, at the end, is where Syria started. As in, like in Egypt, that's where Israel started. Does that make sense? Before they came out. He's saying, I'm going to punish you so bad, you're going to become this fledgling little people in Kir. It'll be like you're not even a nation anymore. I'm going to wipe you off the face of the earth. Okay? Amos 1, 1 through 3 is probably not a good thing to post on your Instagram, right? It's not really going to translate. All right, verse 6. Let's get to the next nation. Thus says the Lord... For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke punishment because they carried into exile a whole people to deliver them up to Edom. Gaza is to the south of Israel and is the land of the Philistines. If that sounds familiar, it's because Goliath, church kids be like, yeah, Goliath was a Philistine. They are guilty, according to this verse, of sending a whole people into exile or kidnapping them and delivering them over to Eden. Write it down, underline it. The God of the Old Testament, uh uh-oh, does not support the slave trade. Right there. You kidnap these people from another country and ship them to another country, and for that, I'm going to wipe you off the map. The Old Testament God is just as angry at slavery as the New Testament God. And there are tons of verses like this, which leads to questions about slavery, which we can talk about, but I don't have time here. Does that make sense? Cool. We will talk about it, though. You know we're going to go there. All right. He does not support this. In fact, we'll see how much he hates what they've done. Look at 7 and 8. I said, man, I'm getting old, these lights. Uh, All right. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza, and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hands against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines will perish, says the Lord. Ashkelon, Ashdod, and Ekron are cities in Gaza. At least they were. They are destroyed. There is not even, see where it says in, in, at the end of verse 8, there will not even be a remnant of the Philistines Left. Think about how many Jewish people exist today. Millions. There are no Philistines. They have been wiped off the face 
of the map. Verses 9 through 10. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Tyre and for four. So again, the transgressions, they just keep growing. It's, it's never ceasing. It's like a fountain of evil. I will not revoke the punishment because they delivered a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. So I will send a fire upon the wall of Tyre. Oh, it rhymed. And it shall devour her strongholds. Tyre, again, there's not going to be a quiz. I'm just kind of filling you in on all this. Tyre is a city in a country called Phoenicia, north of Israel. They also kidnapped people and sold them as slaves to Edom, except in Tyre, it says right there um, in verse 9, and they did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. This means one of two things. Either Tyre is betraying a nation they had a treaty with, or God is applying this again to nobody should kidnap and sell anybody. The covenant of brotherhood, we're all the same in a way, right? They broke the trust of a country in order to benefit themselves, and Tyre will be devastated, all right? Just a couple more. You guys are doing great. Eat them, and then we'll talk about why does this matter. Verse 11, I mean, it matters anyway, but you get it. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Edom, the place everything's been shipped to, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with the sword and cast off all pity and his anger tore perpetually and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send a fire upon Teman and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Edom is punished because of rampant violence in Israel. Verse 11, it pursued, you pursued your brother with the sword. How do we know this is Israel? Because Israel is descendant from Jacob and Edom is descendant from Esau, his brother. And you, verse 11, and you pursued other nations? No, you pursued your brother with the sword. This violence comes from this constant wartime mentality in Edom. It says in verse 11, you had no pity. Your anger tore you perpetually. Wrath that never cooled. Edom was a country that only wanted war, that found its value in how many people it took down. So God will send fire and destruction onto Edom. Teman, verse 12, Teman is its most southern city. Basra is its most northern city. Again, from sea to shining sea, from toe to tip, I'm going to knock all this out. And last one, 13 through 15. You guys are doing really well. 13 through 15. I know this is not like the most like, whatever, I don't care. All right, 13 through 15. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead, that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire in the wall of Rabbah, and it shall devour her strongholds. With shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind, and, the, and their king shall go into exile, and his princes together, thus says the Lord." If you ever say the Bible's boring, it's because you're not reading it. So Ammon is east of Israel, okay? Ammon, this, this, what's this deal with the pregnant women? What's going on? Well, one, I think this is literal, but also it's this idea of Ammon committed genocide against all the peoples it wanted to take out so that it could keep its land. 
If you wipe out the people and their children, the land is yours for this generation and for the next generation. It's kind of this insurance plan, this sick insurance plan. This is not uncommon in the ancient world. This happened all the time. But God still hates it. He doesn't say, oh, well, I didn't know everyone was committing genocide. I didn't know all your friends were committing genocide. So, okay, you can go commit genocide. No, he sees it as a terrible thing. Rabbah, in verse 14, is the capital of Ammon. I'm starting in the middle. I'm going to take you all out. The last thing the people of Ammon will, will hear is the shouting of enemy soldiers coming to kill them. In verse 14, the picture of the Lord as a whirlwind storm is this idea of the divine warrior coming in judgment. It's kind of his battle armor, if that makes sense. God is allowed to judge all the nations and all the peoples. The king and his princes, verse 14, will be wiped, or 15, will be wiped off the map and thrown into exile. So that's five of the seven nations that will be judged, okay? And we'll get into chapter two next week. But so, okay, we've talked about Gaza, and like you can go, like what'd you talk about at college tonight? Well, Gaza and Damascus and Phoenicia, and then like your mom's gonna fall asleep, and then you're just gonna go do whatever you want. So why are we talking about this? What can we take from chapter one of Amos? A lot more than I think you might think. One, so there's like seven of these. One, uh, don't quote from Amos chapter one on your Instagram. Just kidding, but that might be, you may want to think about that. Number two, sin is a universal problem, okay? Sin is a universal problem. All of these nations are different, very different, except for the thing they have in common, which is that they are all guilty before God. Now, let's apply that more to today. Have there been groups of people in the past, in history, and presently, who have been treated unfairly and are being treated unfairly? Absolutely. 100% the answer is yes. I will stand on top of this church and be like, uh, yeah, they have been. Have there ever been groups of people in history without sin? The answer is no. 100% no. And you guys are in this culture, and I'm in this culture, where... I, heard, I saw a guy tweet, Jesus is too conservative for liberals and too liberal for conservatives, which I love. I think it's too simplistic, but I love that. But we live in this culture right now where to be, whatever it is, to be oppressed, to be mistreated, which is wrong, everyone hear me, that's wrong, that's trash. And we as Christians need to own the fact that we've had part in this throughout our history. I'm going to talk about that more in a minute. But We have in this thing, in this culture, that to suffer is the same thing as to be purified before God. And that is not true. A lot of churches preach trash Christian nationalism garbage, and it's awful. But a lot of other churches preach that the fact that you or your people group has suffered somehow seems to make you right before God. And that's wrong, too. All people, Romans 3, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All these nations are guilty of sin in different ways. Does that make sense? Israel's guilty. The church is guilty. But all these other nations are also guilty as well. Okay? Does that make sense? They're all guilty. Um, I, I know so many Christians who, one way or the other, they either teach this suffering is purification thing, or they, are, they don't 
like CRT, and they are completely unwilling to admit any wrongdoing for Christians in the past. That's wrong too. We need to own, does that make sense? Like both of those, we've got to hold to both of those. To you personally, listen, we fall into this category. You will not be held responsible for being treated unfairly. You will not be held responsible for being treated unfairly by your boss, by your spouse, by your school, by your friends. You will not be held responsible. You will be held responsible for your reaction to that treatment. You will be held responsible for the sins you commit in that unfair treatment. Does that make sense? You will not be, which, which leads me to this next thing. Now, it's going to get super heavy for a minute, and then we'll bring it back up, so just hang with me, but, because we've got to talk about both, which leads to this idea, if we're all sinful, it leads to number three, a day of judgment is coming. It is. And I know that that's not cool or fun to talk about, especially in college ministry, but it's true. A day of judgment is coming, and not just for other people, for you. And for me, there is one day of judgment that you cannot put off forever. Like keep swiping credit. I'll pay for it later. We'll pay for it later. We'll pay for it later. We'll pay for it later. You can do that. I mean, good luck, but you can do that. But eventually there is something coming that you and I cannot put off. You and I will die and then we will go before God in judgment. Now we can, Now this is important and this applies to us because here's why. Listen, if a day of judgment is coming, if Amos 1 talks about a God who punishes, listen, then we as people don't need to back off when it comes to punishment. Now, that does, I'm not trying to say we need to let, just hang on me. We don't need to back off on punishment. As you guys, you guys are like one step away from becoming real adults, okay? It's just, it's insane, right? Like, you guys are about to become adults, and you guys have, are about to or already have jobs in which other people are under you. You guys, Lord willing, one day will have children of your own who will be under you. Now, should we be, listen, should we be merciful to these people, to our children? Yeah, 100% to those who work under you. Should you be merciful? Yeah, yeah, we should be merciful. And all the college kids, yeah, amen. We should be merciful, 100%. But if you don't ever draw that line, if you don't ever punish, then your mercy won't matter. You see what I'm saying? If you don't ever punish, then your mercy won't matter. My wife is a middle school social studies teacher. Talk about the front lines of ministry. Um, thank you, Devin. And, the, and, and she, so she's, she had a kid last year, true story. She had a kid last year who, whose mom, and we know this because they met all the time, the mom had a parenting philosophy that was, quote unquote, against punishment. She did not punish her child. She called it encouragement. So if the kid is like beating another kid to death with a golf club, the kid doesn't get punished. That didn't happen. I mean, I don't, whatever. But like that, the kid won't be punished for doing that. He'll be encouraged from not doing it again. How well adjusted do you think that seventh grader was? It, it was a disaster, the kid was super stuck up and arrogant because he's never, his soul has never been conditioned the right way. He got in trouble all the time because he's never had a stopgap for anything. Hebrews 12, God, finish this, God disciplines those he 
loves. This is a part of love. When we punish, when we take action, when we take sin seriously, it points people to a God that takes sin seriously. Does that make sense? It points people to a God that takes thing that takes sin seriously. So, judgment is a reality, okay? For all of us. Number 4 though, read the whole Bible. Read the whole Bible. One of the things that we can take away from Amos chapter 1 is that the Bible is more than just Amos chapter 1. Amos is more than Amos chapter 1. If this was all there was, then that's a dark, dark book with an angry God. And rightly so. These people are kind of the worst. Slavery's mentioned like five times. But you and I know that there's more to the book of Amos than this. There's more to the Old Testament than this. Unfortunately, some so-called pastors and Facebook martyrs think that this is all there is to God. And that's not true. There's more to it than this. There's more to the Bible than this. Listen, but this leads to the other side. This is both sides. Don't ever base any part of your theology on one verse in the Bible or on one part of the Bible. Does that make sense? You sure don't want to base all your theology off of Amos chapter 1, just Amos chapter 1. I love John 3.16. John 3.16 is awesome. Listen, you can get the tattoo, but don't base your whole theology on it. Do you see what I'm saying? Don't base it all on one thing. You've got to read the whole thing. Number five, there's only two more. Number five, you can look at your city like Jonah looked at Nineveh or like Jesus looked at Jerusalem. You can look at your city the way Jonah looked at Nineveh or the way Jesus looked at Jerusalem. In this text, you can almost feel Israel with each nation being like, oh yeah, oh that's good, that's awesome, punish them. But give them what they deserve. Give them what they deserve. That's how Jonah looked at Nineveh. Do you follow me, church kids of the world? That's how Jonah looked at Nineveh. He hated those sinful people. In fact, it says at the end of Jonah, the reason he's running from Nineveh is because he knows that God is merciful. He doesn't want them to get mercy. But we're like this, and we're like, oh, Jonah, uh, but we're like this all the time. Do you, do you know how so-and-so voted? Do you see how they voted last, last election? I hate people like that. Did you, hear what, did you hear what she said about vaccines? Like, how can you think that? Oh, I hate people like that. Oh, can you believe that I have to clean up this person's mess again? Like, they went out, it's their fault, they got themselves in their own problem, this is their fault, and I have to clean it up. I hate these people. Oh my gosh, I hate these people. Hopefully I'm not, not that that's any of you guys, right? But like, but then in Luke chapter 19, Jesus looks at another sinful city, a city that brought it on itself. Jerusalem, a city that I think is more guilty than Nineveh because Jerusalem should have known better. They willfully walked away. And yet Jesus weeps over the city. Listen, do we weep over those who think differently or do we just hate them? And you know, you know the answer in your own soul. Do we weep over those who think differently or do we just hate them? Now, listen, it's very easy for me to be like, now, just be a doormat and let them do whatever. No, you need to call it like you see it. Christian and doormat are not the same word in Greek. Do you follow me? They are not the same word. But this is the true task of the Christian, is to call it like you see it, but to still love these people. 
to still care about these people. But listen, that's not going to get that's not going to work with just me saying, "Hey, you need to be more merciful to people." It's like when you go on family vacation and you're and you're in the car and dad is like, "Hey, we will have fun on this trip. We will enjoy this time together." Well, okay, you kind of ruined it. Like I'm not going to it doesn't work like that. "Hey, be more merciful." Well, pff, okay. Like that's never going to work. It's never going to work. It's about spending more time with Christ and becoming more like him. The, you're never going to get more merciful by keeping your attention on you. You can only become more merciful by turning your eyes to Christ. When looking at Amos chapter 1, listen, when looking at Amos chapter 1 and the total devastating, unending wrath of God, remember what Jesus did for you. Amos chapter 1 to the Jewish person is about the wrath of God. Yeah, but where does the wrath of God ultimately end? At the cross. And in fact, think about this. Think about this. The world was not nearly as populated back then as it is today, right? Think about how many millions of Christians have come through the world. People who Jesus have died for. Way more Christians in, in the world have existed than the people who were in all these little countries at this time. Which means Jesus endured way more wrath on the cross for these millions of Christians than God poured out here in Amos chapter 1 for hundreds of thousands of people. So all this wrath, all this unending pain and suffering and punishment and the gates and the fire, horrible. Jesus endured even more than that on the cross. Amos chapter 1 is about the wrath of God, but it is ultimately about the cross. You get more merciful towards others, not by keeping your eyes on you, but by putting your eyes on him. Seeing his mercy for you, how do you do that? Through sermons, through songs about his mercy, through talking to other people about his mercy, through reading books about his mercy. Jesus took punishment for you and me and for millions of people way more people than all these nations combined, and he put it all on himself. All on himself. Imagine all this wrath going to all these people around Israel, and Jesus puts it all on himself instead. And as that sinks into your heart over time, it's not going to be a one and done. you got to work this in. As that sinks into your heart over time, it'll change it. So let me pray, and then we'll be done.